0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Alright, here we go. We're going to be in 2 Peter again this week. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. And um, as you do, I want to begin by reminding you the circumstances under which Peter is writing this second letter that we, we talked about last week. But remember that Peter is writing this letter from prison and he knows that he is going to be dying soon. He, he, we looked at that last week. He says in verse 13 that he thinks it's right for him to write this letter because, he's, because Christ has shown him that he will be putting off his body soon. And so remember that these are the last words that we have from Peter, and, and, I, and I want you to remember that because death, it amplifies things. It, it brings significance to things. As an example, when I was first starting off as a pastor, I sought out uh, another pastor that I had grown up with and respected, well, respected this day very much, just for some advice, to ask him some questions, and during that conversation, one of the questions I asked him was what was the most embarrassing thing that he had ever done in his ministry? And so he explained to me this time where he was uh, doing a funeral. He's doing communion at a funeral in an episcopal church. And now, episcopal churches they have a, a rail that goes around the, the stage, and there's a kneeling pad on that side, and, and for communion, people come up to the front and they kneel on that kneeling pad, and then one, one priest will go by and hand you a wafer. And another priest will follow him and they hold the cup and, and you just you know, they just tip it over and you take a sip, and they go to the next one, and you take a sip, and they hold the cup and the elements. And so he's doing this and he's explaining to me how as he's going down the line, he's he's at this funeral, as he tips the cup over, tips the cup over, and he gets to this one lady in the middle of the row, and he said the bottom of the cup caught on the rail. And he dumped all the wine on this lady at a funeral. Now it doesn't matter. <laughs> It doesn't matter when you do that, it's not going to be good. But at a funeral, it was catastrophic because death amplifies things. Emotions are high. Everything just gets exaggerated. And I would say another thing that death amplifies is words. Things that are said when someone dies, they carry a, a special significance. Even if they're weird, we remember what they said at the end of their life. So, what I want you to remember is that this morning we are studying the dying words of a man who Christ personally appointed and installed as the leader Of the first church. This is not some regular man that we are hearing from, and this is not some regular time in which we are hearing from him. These are his last words, and that makes these somber words, that makes these words that we need to give special attention to. Because this morning, Peter's going to explain something to us that's not just good advice. It's not just how to live your best life now. This morning, we're going to hear Peter explain something that to us is essential. Peter is going to talk to us this morning about things that determine whether or not we enter heaven. He's going to talk about things that determine eternity. What Peter is going to tell us this morning, and what I want you to see, is that Christians must, not should, not may, not if they want to, Christians must grow in godliness. Christians must grow in godliness. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 3, where Peter says that Christians must grow in godliness because real faith means God's power is at work in us. He says in verse 3, His divine power, he's talking about God, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now let's just get the obvious out of the way. It appears that Peter has probably been spending too much time with Paul. This is a rough sentence. No matter how you, you, you look at it, no matter what translation you have, this sentence, which has almost 50 words in Greek, is confusing. So, let me see if I can help you get your arms wrapped around what Peter is saying in verses 3 and 4. First, Peter says that God has granted to us the power that we need to live a godly life. He has granted that to us. And he says God has granted us that power... Through the knowledge of Him. What knowledge? What knowledge is it through, we, through which we have this power? Well, Peter says that it's the knowledge of His very great and precious promises. Those, those are the pieces. That's, that's what Peter is saying. And I can tell you by your faces that didn't do the trick. So we're going to go back and let's simplify it again. Part 1. God has given us what we need for godliness. And he defines godliness later as as escaping the corruption of sinful desire. God has given us what we need for that godliness. Part two, the source of strength for that godliness, the power that he's given us, is his divine power. He has given us his divine power for this godly life. And then part three, so we have what we need, we have this power, we have this godly life, and what applies God's divine power to our lives. The way God's power is applied to our lives is by knowing and trusting His great and very precious promises. That's faith. So let me reduce verses 3 and 4 to its simplest parts. Peter is saying the divine power that God has given us to live godly lives is found in knowing and trusting His very great and precious promises. The divine power that God has given us to live godly lives is found in trusting His very great and precious promises. Now, why is that so important? Why is that something to which we need to pay special attention? Well, it's important because what Peter is saying is that godliness is only possible by knowing God. And not just knowing God, the English language is confusing in this sense because we only have one word for it. It's not just knowing God. It's not just knowing about God. The demons know about God and they hate Him. The word for knowing that Peter is using here is the word that defines an intimate relationship. It's knowing Him and His promises and trusting in them, and trusting in him. So why is Peter making the connection between knowing God and godliness, why is he making that connection the outset of his dying words? Well, the reason is is because Peter is, 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 is embarking on this last letter, And he wants to start by saying there's a difference between someone who just says a prayer and someone who has a genuine relationship, a genuine saving relationship with God. There's a difference between someone who believes in God and someone who believes on God. There's a difference between this. In other words, Peter is saying that a godly life... A life even that is growing in godliness is the evidence that the divine power of God is at work in your life. Because God only gives that power to those who know and trust Him. To those who have a relationship with Him. So let's just begin with a very simple question. It's an old one, but it's a good one. The question is, is if you were accused of being a Christian would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough evidence to convict you of having a genuine, intimate relationship with God? Or would there only be enough evidence that those are just words? Because real faith means God's power is at work in us. Which means, look at verse 5. Peter says, for this very reason, because God's power is at work in those who have a relationship with him, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now, don't miss the connection between verses 3 and 4 and verses 5 and 7. Don't miss that. Again, notice that verses 3 and 4, it's not a command. It's just a description. It's a description of what someone who knows God has. Which means what, what Peter is saying in verses 5, 5 through 7 is because God has given us the power for godliness, then we must strive to be godly. And I'm going to say this multiple times this morning, but I want you to listen to me because this is so important. Every other religion, not to mention too many churches, they reverse this order. Don't ever believe that we work for these things so that God will work in us. That is not what Peter is saying. The order of verses 3 and 4 and then 5 through 7 is very, very important. Don't ever believe that we work for these things so that God will work in us. That's a completely different gospel. Verse 3 and 4 says God has worked in us. And then for this very reason, now we make every effort to grow in these things. We must never reverse that order. We must never say I make every effort to increase in godliness so that God will grant me his power. No, we make every effort to grow in godliness because God has, past tense, granted us what we need for that growth. That's why Peter says that this process of growth begins with faith. That's why he says make every effort to supplement your faith because that's where this begins, is our faith that transforms us, that brings salvation. That's where this begins. But with that said, we're not going to skip over the emphasis of verses 5 through 7. Because look, verses 5 through 7 is a command. And this is where we need to take the time to ask ourselves do we care? Do we care about what Peter is saying? Here's the evidence of whether or not your meeting with Christ in heaven is going to go well. Do we care? because Peter's going to say Christians must grow in godliness because real faith means we'll want to be more godly. Look at he says real faith means we're going to want these things. Christianity is not a religion of osmosis. One cannot simply passively absorb godliness like, oh, oh yeah, okay, there it is. Now I'm more godly. It's not how this works. Peter is saying the same thing as James said in, in James chapter 2. If you want, you can flip a couple pages to your left. James said in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, A Christian must grow in godliness because real faith means we'll want to be more godly. Again, I want you to make sure you hear what I'm saying because this, this room is, is full of good, guilty Christians who will leave here thinking, well, Pastor Grant said I'm not godly enough. It's not what I'm saying what I'm saying is that we don't judge anyone's salvation by by whether they have become godly, but by their desire to become more godly that is reflected in their effort. In other words, the evidence that God is at work in you through faith is not, the evidence of God at work in your life is not that you have re- reached some degree of godliness. Peter's not going to say in the next passage, like, let your pastor beeth the level to which you attaineth you know, godliness. That's a scary sentence. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. What Peter is saying is that we are to judge our godliness based on the effort we are making to become more like Christ. How much do we desire to become more like Christ? That's what we are supposed to judge ourselves on. And I I would add to that, one of the greatest blessings to me as a pastor is is God allowing me to see that in you. Allowing me to see your desires and your efforts to grow in godliness. It's an incredible blessing. I can can see it in your, your, your wrestling with decisions. I can hear it in the questions that you ask But I also have to be honest here as well. Some of you are just sitting there like bumps on a spiritual log. Your your effort to grow in godliness makes it clear that becoming more like Christ, it lies somewhere between the dentist and doing your taxes on your to-do list. So how about it? Do you want to grow in godliness? Do you want verses 5 through 7? Does that mean anything to you? And if you do, if you want to grow in godliness, what does that look like? What what, what would that desire to grow in godliness look like? Well, it's really cool. Peter gave us a list. He says says in verse 5, Are you making every effort to supplement your faith with virtue? And by virtue, Peter means an honorable life. And and what he's saying is, is is your salvation made evident by you growing, increasing, that you're growing in that that who you are here this morning is the same as you are in private? Is your life growing in honorableness or virtue? And he says, then are you making every effort to supplement that virtue with knowledge? Do you want to learn more about the God who loved you enough to save you? Are you making an effort to get to know Him or, or do you just hope that you'll absorb something neat uh, from someone else when you make it to church? Are you growing in your desire to know Him? Are you making every effort to supplement that knowledge with self-control? Are you aware of what, your, your, what about your sinful nature you need to make an effort to control? What is it about you? Everybody struggles with different things. Are you aware of what that is about you you need to to bring under control, that you need to bring into submission to the Word of God? Are you making every effort to supplement that self-control with steadfastness? The endurance of doing these things, your growth in your ability to endure these things. You guys know how much I hate long-distance running. It's a huge waste of time. I've told you before, I feel a lot like Gimli from the Lord of the Rings. I'm very dangerous over short distances. But God bless me with way too much junk in the trunk to run for a long way. But the Christian life is one of a distance runner. So, so are you putting effort into becoming a distance runner in these qualities that Peter is describing? Are you doing the conditioning it takes to to, to run the race of a godly life? And then are you making every effort to supplement that steadfastness with godliness? In his first letter, Peter gave us some ideas of what that might look like. Those were fun to to look at, right Bob? (laughs) Think about the, the... the difficulties of godliness that Peter described in his first letter. He told us to keep our, 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 our actions honorable in front of the Gentiles so that they would know that we are Christians. And then he went on to list some things. And thanks, Peter, it was all about submission. Are, are you making an effort to grow in your endurance of submission and humility? That's not something we like to do for a long time. Are you you making an effort to grow in your endurance of submission and humility, or or do you need a water break? And then he says, are you supplementing your godly endurance with brotherly affection and love? I, I would think about it this way. How much, or maybe I should say how little, does it take for you to break ties with a brother or sister in Christ? is 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 one little slight or insult enough for you to disengage from a brother or sister who is it you're avoiding because you've perceived an insult from them or or something wrong because Peter is thinking about how Christ treated him after he denied him 3 times and and he's calling us to make every effort to grow in in the kind of forgiving and enduring love that our Savior has shown us. And like everywhere else in the Bible, what I want you to notice is that this process of growing to be more like Christ, it begins with faith, and it ends with love. And everything in between is that travel from faith to love. A Christian must grow in godliness because real faith means we'll want to be more godly. But Peter isn't done. Growing in godliness, it isn't just an evidence of our salvation. In verses 8 and 9, Peter's now going to say that a Christian must grow in godliness because standing still is actually moving backwards. He says in verse 8, Let's go back to verse 5. He says, for for this reason, make every effort to do these things. And then he says in verse 8, for, or we know that could be replaced with what? Because if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word again. He says in verse 9, And also because whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So once again, notice the connection between verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7 and verses 8 through 9. Peter says to make every effort to grow in these qualities. Why? Well, because in verses 8 and 9, increasing in these qualities... It keeps you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of God. What in the world does that mean? What he's saying is, is if you're growing in these qualities, well, let me say it like he does. If you're not growing, if you're not increasing in godliness, then your knowledge of God is useless. That's what he's saying. Someone who is not growing in godliness, whatever it is they know about God, it's useless. It's useless. And in addition, then he says in verse 9 that lacking in these qualities means you've forgotten what you were saved from. Like like you you just forgot this whole salvation thing. What Peter is describing is, is a dual problem for those who are not growing in godliness. He's saying not growing in the direction of Christ, not becoming more like Christ, is like being at the mercy of a strong tide. You've lost sight of where you're growing, going, and you, you don't remember where you've been. John Piper tells a story written in a book titled Glenda's Long, Slim, Long Swim, and it comes from a, a children's series called The Incredible Series. This particular story goes that a, a, a husband and wife named Glenda and Robert Lennon they were four miles off the coast of Florida doing some fishing, and Glenda decided that she'd jump in the water off the boat and just for a swim. However, in a matter of moments, not knowing that the tide was there, the tide had carried her far away from the boat, and her husband, not thinking, thought she was hurt, dove in, swum to her, and then before he realized it, they were both trapped in this tide and were in serious trouble drifting away from the boat. He says, now Robert was was the champion swimmer, but not Glenda, and so they came up with this plan. Robert would swim against the tide to keep the boat in view until the tide ceased, and he could reach the boat. Glenda would save her strength and just float with the tide until Robert could come back and get her. So Robert began to swim against the tide. He fought the tide for six hours, and still the boat was drifting away. Just as the boat was about to disappear over the horizon, he says, the tide turned and, and, and Robert's strokes began to bring him closer and closer to this boat. But by the time he got back, the sun had already set and he was so exhausted that he could hardly get himself over the edge into the boat. And so as he searched, it became obvious that his search was futile. He couldn't find Glenda in the dark. So finally the next morning, by then some some help had come out and they were making searches for his wife. And as they made their last pass on this search, they finally found his wife still alive. But by just floating, the tide had carried her 20 miles away from where their boat was anchored. This is not only an incredible story, but it's a great illustration of the dangers of just floating through the Christian life. What this story illustrates is that there is no such thing as a Christian who floats. A Christian that isn't growing and swimming and struggling against this tide of corruption is being carried backwards by the tide of sin. There's no such thing as a Christian who floats, because, because doing nothing as a Christian is, is actually going backwards. I, I would say I wonder if you've ever had this experience where you have some close friends. You, you have kids the same age. You, you're, you're very uh, um, close. Both you go to church together. You're kind of at the same place in life, spiritually and everything else. And for some reason or another, you, you end up separating for a long period of time. One of you moves, something like that. And several years later, you have an opportunity to, to to meet back up with these folks, but something's off. Your, your friends aren't the same that you remember. They have they, fallen. You're not on the same page anymore. They seem to have gone backwards. It's a it's a very sad thing. I know we've experienced this, and you lament. You ask yourself, what happened? Well, the short answer is is they quit swimming. You've seen this gap grow, but what you've seen is that, that because your friends began to, to just float, not only is there the distance because they had been pulled backwards, but in your swimming forwards, the distance had doubled. And you see this great difference between you and someone you used to be so close to. Christians must grow in godliness. Godliness. Because real faith means God's power is at work in us. We must grow in godliness because real faith means we'll want to be more like God. And we must grow in godliness because standing still is just going backward. Therefore, Peter says, therefore Christians must grow in godliness. He says in verse 10, and this is the important part, because ultimately it's how we confirm our salvation. Like it says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me say this again. Our effort to grow in godliness, it will in no way cause God to to show us favor or to love us more. Our effort will not in any way earn God's affection. We don't get election by doing this. We just confirm it. It's a sign. Our growing in godliness, it's evidence, it's proof that we have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the reason that this happens is because true saving faith means that God is living in you, that He's part of you. And if God is living in you, then He's changing you. The Bible is very clear, the same way Peter is saying here, the hallmark of salvation is a desire, not an obligation, a desire to want to be more like Christ. And knowing these will be His last words... Peter finds himself pleading with his readers, even with us, to confirm our salvation, to make it sure. Because just like back then, our culture has has corrupted the Christian faith into a, a simple prayer that equates to something like life insurance. Like, I, 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 I said this prayer, I, yes, I'm a Christian, but whatever, I, 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 got, I got that insurance. Peter is saying no. Please listen, there is clear evidence in the life of someone who truly believes. Crystal clear evidence. Jesus was speaking in Matthew chapter 7. It's one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture. And he he said in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? The one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And, And then I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. I never had that intimate relationship with you that you think we had. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I I can't help but think that these words of Jesus are echoing in Peter's ears as he wrote this. Peter is concerned that, that there might be some who will arrive on that day and say, Didn't we check the right boxes, Jesus? I mean, I said a prayer. I invited you into my heart. I even went on a mission trip to Mexico for a weekend. And Peter is saying, listen, brothers and sisters, if I have one last opportunity to speak to you, then what I want to say is take a hard look at your life and ask yourself, is there clear evidence in my life about what direction that conversation will take when I stand before Christ? He's saying Christians must grow in godliness because that is evidence. It's proof that their salvation is real. So I want to leave you with this. I I would say that that there are three types of people that hear this message. And I would even say three types of people in this room. There There are some in this room to whom... This call from Peter to to be more diligent, to put effort into confirming our calling and election. There there are some people in this room to whom that will feel like a burden, an obligation. Like, good grief, man. More? Ain't I already doing enough? What do you want from me? I, I hate this guilt thing they do to you at church. And to you, Peter is saying, friend, I beg you to look at your life. To take a hard look at your heart and question whether or not you are truly saved. If growing in godliness sounds like an obligation, Peter's dying words are, please, ask yourself whether or not you really are saved. That's one. I would say there's a second type of person Peter is speaking to. Someone who, who hears what Peter is saying about this need to grow in godliness and, and they might think to themselves, well, I, I really want to be more like God so long as I decide how and when that happens. So, so long as you or others ain't giving me the suggestions about how I might need to grow. And to you, Peter is saying, brother or sister, that's not a desire to grow in godliness. To to say I want to grow in godliness and then to say, like, I did it my way, those are incompatible statements a genuine relationship with God, it creates a desire to be more godly in any way possible. It would welcome the suggestions from others to say, hey, brother, sister, I need you to, to grow. This is not looking good. You would appreciate that and even invite that because you, you want every opportunity you can to confirm your election by, by becoming more like Christ. And if you're blind to something, then you want to know what that is. That's two, I would say, the third person hearing this message, and and by far most of you here this morning. What I know this is, and I pray that it becomes more, is that what Peter is saying, this divine power and this need for us to, to continue growing in godliness, it feels like a strong wind in your sails. It connects with that desire that God has has planted in your heart. And it's this rally cry that makes you want more. It's not an obligation. Not at all. To hear Peter saying to put every effort into growing into godliness is exciting. Thank you. I wanted to hear that again, Peter. And, And to you, Peter is saying... Don't be afraid to let those desires consume your life. Don't be afraid to let your desire to grow more like Christ consume your life. Allow your heart and your life to be swept away distracted even, by your desire to become more like your Savior. Peter would say, let let the evidence of your your intimate, life-changing relationship with God, let it be the consuming joy of your life. Let the desires of your heart, that desire that God has placed in you to want to be more like Christ the desires that that you have that are set on those very great promises of your God, let those be evidence to the world of the glory and the majesty of your God. Don't hold back. Find immense joy in confirming, not questioning, but looking at your life and saying, Amen, absolutely I am saved because I love this. I want more. I want to be more like my Christ. I want to be more like my Savior. Brothers and sisters, unchain that dog. Let your anchor be the the thing that keeps you tethered. To that desire, the the fuel that keeps you wanting and marching and, and pressing more towards Christ, let the anchor be that promise, that on that glorious day when you enter the eternal kingdom, richly, Peter says, Let that anchor be for you, that you will hear the words well done my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for your word and I thank you for every part of it. I thank you for the hard parts. I thank you for the encouraging parts. And Father, I pray that this morning you would speak truthfully to each and every one of our hearts. I pray that through your words that you have have spoken through Peter that that for those that need to question honestly the evidence in their life of their salvation that you would convict them of this and, and give them a desire to do so. and Likewise, Lord, I pray that through your Spirit you would greatly encourage those who want to be more like you who have a desire to be more like you that you would greatly encourage them that that, that desire is proof that you live in them give, give us the courage to fan that desire into flame give us the power and, and the want to that you have promised we have in your word, Father. I thank you and I praise you and I glorify you because, as you've said, everything that we have, the, the, the desire even to be more like you, you have given us. And you've given it to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is because he has paid for our sins, Lord, that you have a relationship with us. And so as with everything good, we thank you, we praise you, and we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.